MP, Christmas is almost here. Brado, doesn't that mean the world's about to end? Oh, don't be silly, Marcus. But what is about to end is the two-for-one tickets to the Wellness Base Camp. Jeepers, Brado. Two-for-one tickets to the Wellness Base Camp close this Friday, December 15. Book your tickets now to go in the draw to win some incredible prizes. That's right, Brado. We have three copies of Joe and Fuad's life-changing food to give away and up for a chat, Kim Morrison is giving one lucky Base Camp attendee the signature 28 diffuser with not one, not two, but three synergy blends, including festive spirit. That is valued at almost 200 bucks. All you need to do is book your tickets to the Wellness Base Camp by Friday, December 15 to go in the draw. Give yourself the best Christmas present ever. And win a prize. Two for one tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up For A Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Cindy O'Meara, and I'm alone today because Kim and Karen could not be with us. But let me tell you something. If I did have Kim and Karen here, there might be a bit of a problem because you know we all have nicknames. Um, Kim is known as the Tart, as you all know, and Karen is known as the Princess, and they call me Bear Grills. So we're having a very Bear Grills talk today because over the weekend, I went to one of the most amazing courses, um, and the course was called Wild Food, Wild Medicine, and it was with Rich Hungerford, and I've asked Rich if I could interview him because the whole weekend was... Oh, absolutely wonderful. I learned so much and I thought that everybody on Up For A Chat would really love to hear his story, why he got into what he, he does right now um, and maybe we can even talk about you guys wanting to do some of these courses, which would be really interesting. I've already got the whole of the Changing Habits team almost interested to, to do a course with Rich. So welcome, Rich, and thank you for being on Up For A Chat. Hi, Sydney, and thanks for inviting us along. It's um, pretty, pretty interesting stuff, and I'm really stoked to be here. <laughs> Wonderful. So let's start with uh, what, what were you doing in your life before you started teaching people survival, uh, wild food, wild medicine, you know, that a weed is not a weed, it's actually probably medicinal. What, what did you do uh, in your life before that that led you to this? Well, it's a long journey, I guess, like we all experience as we sort of get the privilege of growing older and hopefully more wiser. Mine started at the tender age of 13, 14, somewhere around there when I got hooked on the, the Bush Tucker Man, Les Hiddens and living off the land and doing those kind of cool outdoorsy things. That all led me to um, end up joining the army. I became an infantry soldier. I ended up in a reconnaissance and sniper platoon, which gave me a little bit of a leg up into sort of some specialist skill areas. And one of those was I became an army survival instructor. That was um, right back in the 80s. And that was my first sort of formal survival training. And 
on that, I learned, I guess, basically how to live off the land, how to recognise plants, how to use plants for food purposes and medicine purposes, as well as a whole stack of other stuff that still impact, impacts on how I teach and what I teach today. Not long after that, I went to the Special Forces world and I became an SA soldier. I spent the great majority of my military career in the Australian Special Air Service Regiment over in Perth. Uh, fantastic job, fantastic career. I finished as a, an SAS patrol commander, which is kind of like, the, I guess, the world champion status of soldiering. Um, I was lucky enough to be deployed operationally a number of times. So I got to really see a lot in the short time I was sort of involved in the military, which is actually not a short time. It was about 17 years all up. It goes rather quickly. Mm. And all that then is framed within my mind a way of doing stuff. And then when I left the army, I fell into a big black hole because I'd lost my uh, sense of reference, who I was, my entire culture. And then for a while there, I didn't do much of great value at all other than write reports and do security assignments and security reviews, all of which didn't really seem to float my boat. So then I looked around and ended up establishing bush law. So let, let's just go back to your, um, your life in the, the armed forces because um, I, uh, let, let's just, we'll go backwards, will we? I know a lot of people come out of the armed forces not doing well at all and they, they have a bit of maybe an attitude about what's happened to them or they have post-traumatic stress or um, they have all these issues and by the way, you know, by what I heard over the weekend, I felt like you may have come out with um, health issues, maybe some stress was going on. Yes. And like you said, you fell into a, a deep hole. So can you, you talk about what that was like um, being in, in that and what it's like for our armed services men that, that retire and, or are no longer in action? What, what is it like? Um, what's happening in their head, what's happening in their physical body, uh, you know, things like that. Yeah, look, the first thing I think people would, would benefit in understanding is the army is a subculture of our wider society. Within it, there's a very strong sense of culture that is slightly different to the wider communities. It's, uh, there's a strong sense of com camaraderie, there's a strong sense of behavior and there are certain codes of behaviors and performances that are more ex expected and are the normal behaviors they're not anything weird or wonderful they're just it's just a sort of a, a much more of a, a larger group of closer knit people who have a certain level of common training and as a consequence they have a particular view of the world and how it's supposed to be lived now i what happens to a lot of us is when we leave that close-knit community and that tight culture and we try and assimilate back into the wider community, we struggle for a while because we, we're looking at the world in a different way. We're looking with a different set of expectations and we sort of struggle to just get back, back to the fact that not everyone sees the world the way we do. That's the first big hurdle. Service in the military naturally ends up resulting in a level of uh, exposure to a range of toxic chemicals, 
um, negative behaviors, you see some nasty things if you're there long enough. And as a consequence, you have likely accrued some level of health impact by the time you leave. That was certainly my case. Um, I had a lot of exposure to heavy metals, particularly with all the, the counter-terrorist training that we go through. We do a lot of shooting indoors. We're inhaling vaporized lead and a whole conglomerate of other heavy metals. Uh, we exposed to CS gas, so the tear gas. We use that on a regular basis. That's since been sort of discovered that's not really that great for us. Mm. Um, and right down to things like asbestos, we're sort of blowing things up and they're made of asbestos and then we're standing there happily inhaling it going, oh, this is great. Oh, that's asbestos, fellas. Um, so there's a whole range of issues, both mental, psychological and physical, that a soldier potentially leaves the military with. And the other thing that I remember talking about is that um, there were a lot of vaccines that we don't get as a public that you were exposed to because of your deployment overseas. And you said that one really affected you. Yes. Um, things like anthrax were given to basically all of our early deployments into the Middle East, particularly because of the, the issues in Iraq with the threat or threatened use of, of chemical weapons, um, and that, that just then became a, a default setting. So we're, we're given a lot of things that were well off the, the normal sort of scale of inoculations. Some of those were clearly not tested fully, and we'll, we'll maybe never know the full extent of, of health impact that we suffered from. Yeah, we wonder why our guys come back. And, and it's not just that, it's everything that you've talked about. And we wonder why our women and our men come back and they're not, um, you know, probably resilient to what is happening in normal life. And, and, and you've talked about everything. And I, I do know that um, amongst our veterans that, um, you know, they are lost. There's a, a place here on the Sunshine Coast called Digger's Rest and I've spoken to the gentleman who owns it and it's a place, a farming area basically where people can come and um, get their life back who are, are veterans and, you know, he says he gets a lot of young men coming in who don't know where they are in society and they then... Um, and not wanting to be in the world anymore, in actual fact. But when they have a sense of purpose and they get back into the natural world, um, then everything starts to change. And I want to know, you know, you've done that by yourself. You um, bought this beautiful 320-acre um, property in the hinterland of the Sunshine Coast and you are in the natural world and you, and it almost is like you've done exactly what Digger's Rest is doing for individuals. You you did this for yourself. Yeah, I did and I, I sort of did it pretty soon after I left the regiment, which is what we call our, our particular unit. The, and that was an act of, I guess, compensation for a very very bad attitude. I've, I struggled with people. I struggled with people's uh, attitudes. I, just, I struggled with people's attitude and approach to me. Um, and, but clearly a lot of that was, was me. It was my perception of the world. 
And at some point, I got to understand that I wasn't good company. And I had always had that leaning to go bush. So I started just doing what I informally called going on walkabout. And I would just disappear. I, would, um, I was doing fly-in, fly-out work at the time, ironically back into Iraq. So I was living a very adrenal-charged fly-in, fly-out kind of lifestyle, still exposed to a lot of junk in all facets. And then I'd come home, get my administration in order, and then I'd just get in the car, drive out to the bush, park the car, and come back a week, two weeks, sometimes three weeks later. And up in that space where there's no other people, I was, to be honest, not quite concerned if I came back or not. It was just not something I was worried about. So I was testing a lot of what I teach now mm-hmm. to the nth degree and literally standing on the side of mountains, screaming my lungs out and to, to the point of exhaustion. Just to, I guess it's just a, a, a tool to vent out all the frustration or the anger that I had been experiencing at that time. But it was the peace and quiet of the bush, the green therapy that I think did the healing work after that. Hmm. Well, I know I felt very healed after that weekend in your place. Um, Just, um, you know, we had an outdoor classroom. Uh, We did field work. We had a fire going the whole time. Um, There was a bush kitchen, a bush toilet. And I just, I felt so revived after that weekend. I felt like I'd been gone for, uh, I'd been gone bush for weeks. So uh, what, what we did um, on this particular course, because I know that you do many courses um, like survival or um, like next weekend, I think you're doing a course in, what was it, animals? Um, so crickets and frogs, <laughs> eating them. Wasn't that right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, we call it a hunter course, but it's, it's not hunting the way people perceive it. It's hunting the small things that you don't need a longbow or a shotgun to bring down that you can do with minimal calorie output for maximum calorie gain Mm, yeah and what what you taught me and what i absolutely loved was that uh the food that the the grasses or the the vegetation that i was walking on when i was tramping was actually my food and i got that on the second day and i i remember saying to everybody oh i'm I'm walking on my food i'm feeling really weird about this and I, i remember you made um, you know, a statement about that, um, that you do become more aware of your surroundings and your un- the understanding because most people would starve in the bush because they wouldn't know exactly what to eat, especially the Australian bush. They, Like I, I looked at all the foods that you were showing us in a very, like in a almost a three square metre um, area and there was an abundance um, of food for us throughout the seasons. So um, I, I want to know... Did that interest and what you taught us start in your life in Papua New Guinea where you um, spent your childhood, wasn't it, in Papua New Guinea? Did, did that start there or did that start in the army when you were doing, um, you know, survival training? Um, for me, it kind of started in Papua New Guinea because after school I would go and hang out with all my local mates and we'd go and raid 
the neighbourhoods, guava trees, pawpaw and papaya trees, bananas, um, taro plantations in, the, in, the, in the, the garden areas around the backs of the houses and we just have a big old cook-up in someone's backyard. And I just, I think that ability to walk in, and it looked, it wasn't like you're walking into an orchard, you're walking into the forest, the jungle. And a Papua New Guinean garden, house garden is like that. It's just kind of etched out of the surrounding forest. And so when you're, when you're doing that, you're, you're kind of getting this sensation that you are living off the land. And I think that just instilled in me a, a love of having that freedom. And it was a bit of childish, boyish, you know, mischief, in, mischief involved as well in terms of everyone owns those type of food plants in a place like Papua New Guinea. So you were kind of like pinching stuff off trees that probably weren't necessarily yours to pinch stuff off. There was a bit of a thrill yeah. in that as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like to gather from other people's gardens, especially lemons that are hanging over or aloe vera that's coming out across. Or I've, I've, um, in New Zealand, you know, you see mint and, um, gosh, there's so much. Um, or rosemary is a big one that you see in New Zealand. So I, I get you on that one. I, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I think it's legal to gather yeah. like that, isn't it? Like lemon. <laughs> I just don't ask, as in don't ask if it's legal, legal or not. I mean, why, why Australians ever should have to buy lemons, I don't know. It should be like, I remember as a kid in Australia that every yard has a, had a lemon tree. Now it's like, that's not the case. Hmm. We, I, I, that's what I think we need to probably go back to, and I think you'll agree with me on that, is that um, we have in our our own small space it doesn't matter how big it is and I understand people are going oh yeah but he's got 320 acres but you can do as much on a small plot of land as you can on a large plot of land you know you can have instead of trees that don't produce fruit have trees that do produce fruit or trees that produce nuts or a herb garden and I loved your herb garden it was just um the the, the bush we found mint uh, we found so many, and, and I want to talk about the plants, the plants later. But before I talk about um, our field work, what I what I loved was your philosophy. And if I was to go through my notes and think and go through everything that you taught in your philosophy, I think that that's what really impacted me probably the most. And um, you know, it, it was not only that's your philosophy. Cool. Yeah, it was. It was a real, in, in that you said some people are purists in that they just want Australian bush foods, but you look at what has been introduced and you look at the whole, you know, the whole scope. I've, my first bit of philosophy that I want you to talk about was one that you spoke about over the weekend, and, and that was the five stages of grief. And I want you to talk about it in perspective of what it was like for you when you got out of the army and did you go through those five stages? Um, and, and I loved your perspective on it's not linear. So can you, you talk about that philosophy there? Because grief can come in many ways. It's not just yeah, about death. Sure. Well, yeah. yeah. And I used Elizabeth Kuba Ross's model from some time ago, who was a Swiss researcher in the psychiatric and psychology space and she proposed a model that a lot of people accepted as a linear model. I don't know if she fully intended it that way, but that's how it was sort of taken and maybe a little bit misinterpreted. 
I used her model because it seemed to explain what I was experiencing, both in my personal life, but also in survival situations and really uh, dangerous situations that I'd been in whilst in service. It was this concept of dabda, and it's an, a mnemonic for denial, anger. She uses bargaining. I've, been, I've replaced that with blame because I think we have a, a more connected association with the concept of blame in our current age. Then she used depression and I replaced that with defeat. So in survival situations, you tend to have this sense of being defeated by the circumstance. And then you eventually get down to this point called acceptance, which to me is where you make a mental shift. So above that line, you're, you're sort of going through this cyclic or eclectic emotional dynamic that's playing out going going through and it's all someone else's problem you're angry because it's someone else's problem who got you in this situation or has done you wrong you don't want to know about it so you're in denial then you're then you're blaming someone else again and then eventually you just get beaten by it and you just keep cycling around in that space and i regard that collectively as a state of victimhood and that was certainly my experience of life at that stage of my life when I when I not long after I left the army and for quite a period of time beyond that it took it took me a good 10 years I think to sort that aspect of things out eventually you click over the line to just accepting it for me it was not a glamorous story I remember just waking up um, in my kitchen on the floor one day um, and I'm I'm sort of not too proud to sort of sort of reveal it. You know, I, I was drinking a lot of alcohol at the time. I, I'm not a drinker. I, I was using it as a form of escapism from the misery that I that victimhood state that I was existing in. And I just remember saying one word, and that was simply enough. And I think mm. that that point, I had clicked over that line into the acceptance aspect of that model, and I just got up and said, "No more." And then from that moment onwards, my life began to change and become uh, more focused on becoming useful again, getting out of my self-deprecating, self-sort-of-woe-is-me state. Um, and it's, it's a gradual thing, but I made a clear decision that morning that that was enough. And I think that's how that rolled out in my own life when I've been in survival situations, when I've seen others in circumstances of great physical and emotional challenge, I've observed the same patterning happen. And it's coming and going multiple times. So it's, it's a great model to explain how our emotional software is performing in the background when we are in that fight or flight, acute stress response, or worse, we're actually realistically facing life and death situations and we don't like it mm. it's and then you you talked about um i've actually just got something as you were were it, it's funny how when you hear something a first time you don't get all the information and then you hear it a second time and and you you do get more of the information but i i finally got that um one to four denial anger bargaining and defeat is victimhood it's, you said that, it's, it's victimhood and it's living, living below the line, which you talked about, which is blame. And then you click over to acceptance, which is living above the line and taking responsibility for your whole life, no matter what um, the, 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 
the you know the consequences are of that life it's you taking responsibility and i find that people who take that responsibility um for everything that's happening in their life whether they think, you know think it's not their fault or not um actually live um happier healthier um more successful lives would you, would you agree with me on that one or do you have a different take on it no totally that is totally the way i perceive it that's that's how i teach now because that to me has been my experience and it 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 pushes people out of being i guess self-absorbed it pushes people back into a position of service to others and it's that whole you know, sort of constant flow of energy outwards whereas when we when we're in that victimhood we are very much just taking energy in it's all about us it's it's all negative we have got self talk in our head that is just running us down it is not making us feel empowered and to me that's the worst thing you could have in a survival situation that to me was the thing to avoid all those walkabouts out in the bush by myself that was the thing that stood out it was the noise in my head the voice that just would not shut up and it was <laughs> all bad it was like you know no one cares if you even live or die out here what's it all for you know you're wasting your time just give up and it was just going it would just go round and around and around repeatedly and if you paid attention to it you start to buy into that noise and that's where i was at at that stage of my life i was believing what that junk was saying in my head and that's that's where i think it can be detrimental to us So it was that time in the kitchen that woke you out of that is that is that what it was almost like being hit over the head with a sledgehammer is that what happened or it just cruised in or how how did that how did you just get that enough Um I think it crept in over successive exposures so every time I went out on a walk about I would hear the same stuff and the forest is very quiet Um you get the wind the crackle of the fire the noise of the bush around you but your head's louder and i kept saying and remember myself saying i don't like you and that's mm. a real difficult thing for us to often come to a point of self realization with that you don't like yourself and um while it's tough it's a it's a necessary discussion for so many of us because then you sort sort of sit there and delve down into the detail and go well why don't i like me but is there's no escape out there that was the beauty of it the green therapy traps you in there you've got to face your demons and you've got to come to grips with it and you've got to sort it out and that's what i find useful in a survival context you don't have time to be down on yourself when the chips are down you just got to get on with life and get up and do what's necessary so you do this 3 day survival um camp i guess for a better word <laughs> um <laughs> tell me just give us an example of somebody who loses it um and and what do what do they do and how do you calm them down because we had a discussion about i said the one thing that really um ta- you know gets me into it well there's lots of things that get me into a state but i mean the one thing that continually gets me into a state is um the ocean and getting under those very big waves when i want to swim every day 
sometimes I have to go, I, I do it every day, but I don't, I don't seem to be able to stop that rising um, anxiety about getting under the waves and getting under one and then two and then three. So we talked about some strategies, but I want to know when somebody loses it with you, because I want to know what I'm going to be like um, when I do that survival training with you, <laughs> what, do you what do you do? You know, what do you do and what do they do and then what do you do to, to change the situation? And does that then transgress into everyday life? Well, look, the, the, the fundamental three-day wilderness survival course I do out here as a sort of basic introduction to it is, is predominantly instructional. I get people exposed to the external environment in a very tactile way so that they understand you know, that there's going to be these stresses that all turn up all at once and assault every aspect of their emotional sort of space that will be a little bit overwhelming. Now, some people, even on a three-day course that's essentially um, camp-based, still haven't had a lot of experience in the bush. So when it gets dark and they haven't had anything to eat, um, and they're with a bunch of people they don't know, there's funny noises in the bush, or even better, if I can get the Bureau of Meteorology to support me, it rains, which is great, <laughs> because that really just brings people down to, oh, I can't do this. Mm. But it's really not anything that they can't physically cope with. It's all emotional. And everyone has their own journey to walk with that. And some people, it's nothing. Oh, I've done this a million times. I go hiking and camping all the time. No problem. But what I try and do on the course there is get those that are stronger within the group, so in the student group, to help make the others feel stronger as well. Because that's part of the subliminal survival and inspirational leadership journey that you know, we should be encouraging people to walk along. Survival leadership is completely different. You you lead by presence. You lead by example. Literally, it's you getting up and doing the, doing the things that need to be done that others feel incapable of doing. Okay, we go. We need some more firewood. I'll go and collect some. Mm. Oh, really? Oh, how do you do that? Where do you find the energy from? But you you are actually inspiring them to go. Yep, yeah, I need to get up. I need to go and do some stuff. I need to get on with this. So that's, that's one strategy that happens within the group. The, the three sort of survival, emotional resilience techniques that I currently teach, um, they all help people just become more centred to reduce their, their heart rate from a physiological point of view and to get themselves calmed, grounded and focused on what is going to be needed to be done now and not worrying about, well, I could be dead tomorrow or... How, how come I'm in this situation? Those are the two discussions and other discussions in that space that they need to avoid and just focus on the here and now. As Dan Millman says, where are you and what time is it? I'm here. What time is it? Now. Now. <laughs> and that's the best way to think of it. Yeah. Jeez, mm. I'd love to see Karen and Kim in this. Karen especially. We call her the princess. So that could be really interesting if we... We do a, um, a survival course with you. That could be very interesting. Um, you, one of the things that you talked about is emotional resilience. You felt that, that it was an important tool. How, how, you know, like I know there's, I, 
there's a book about emotional resilience and I can't remember. I read it many years ago. I um, can't even remember who it was. But, you know, how do you get emotional resilience? How do you achieve it? And, I, I, you know, you must have had that emotional resilience in the, in the armed forces because you were in scary territories for many years. And I want to know, how do you get that emotional resilience? Oddly, um, I think we spoke about this on the weekend. I was probably the worst person or one of the worst people to answer that question because I've been through a filter. That filter was the SA selection process and the onward selection training and stuff that we go through. As a consequence, I come from a culture where everyone is just motivated enough intrinsically to just get on and do what needs to be done. It wasn't until I started teaching civilians here at Bush Law that I finally got questioned enough times by students going, how do I get myself motivated or keep my my motivation running when everything's not going right? How do I do it? And I'd be going, you know, you just do it. And obviously that was an insufficient explanation. So it pushed me back into a space of introspective self-examination to go, well, what do I and the other blokes that I work with and have been in service with do that is different? So I wrote a small book called Survival Wisdom, which is basically, a, it's, it's like a self-help book in terms of motivational words and sort of little passages. But the, the introduction to that explains this concept I have, which I have total faith in, which is that every one of us shares the same physiology and psychology by and large, which means just because I'm an SAS soldier doesn't mean I have some secret mutant DNA that enables me to do stuff that no one else can do. If that was the case, you wouldn't have people with no survival training surviving getting lost in the bush for three weeks. It wouldn't be possible. So we know it's there and we just know that it's something powerful. So what I've just managed to do is figure out what that was in a way I could explain it to people that was useful to them. And that's really what the whole thing is about. It's making accessible to others things that I've taken for granted from my background and the background of the people I work with and saying, here's what I call the X factor. The X factor is this emotional resilience thing. Let's see if you've got it. And, oh, look, you're a human being too. How about that? That means you can dig into this same repository of strength when you really need to. And I'm just going to show you where it is in your own psychology. We're going to practice that a little bit and we're going to give you some tools to help you find it when you need it. But that means it's then totally transferable to all aspects of your life. It lets you be the cool, calm, collected and centred rock in any group of people or your family when things are just not being nice, when you're having one of those days that is not going well. So... You know, I've had fantastic feedback on how the explanations have made a difference to people's lives because that's really what they are. The, the, it's nothing I've invented. It's just I've explained how to get them into action in your respective mind or heart. Does that make sense? Yes, and I think that that's what I picked up the most was um, action. Yeah, 
was really important because a lot of us, when we're in a, um, and we're not emotionally resilient, we will sit on our butts and do nothing, maybe watch the television or blank out or subside from life or do whatever. And I think that that's what really hit me is that I was always taught that. I was always taught get into action. I don't care what kind of action you get into, but just get into action um, in in order to get yourself out of whatever the, the situation is that, that you're in. Um, so, yeah, I... When you said that, and I think I remember you saying something about keep your hands busy, and that's what really struck home to me. And I did um, a Western Wilderness Land Management course with Outward Bound for two months through the Colorado Rockies where there was no showers. There There was creeks and there were tents for two months. And one of the things that we did towards the end of it was three days of solo um, in Canyonlands, Utah. And it's a very desolate place. There's rattlesnakes, there's coyotes. You know, you you hear a lot of sounds in those three days and those three nights and you're alone and you're by yourself and you're left with water and a tarp and a sleeping bag. That was basically all that I had. But you know what I figured, um, what I did during the day was I kept my hands busy. I snuck in a needle and thread. I know that's really bad. I know I shouldn't have done that and probably Outward Bound would kill me for it. But I did sneak in a needle and thread. And I made jewellery through the day. And then at night, I remember all the sounds. And you're alone in the middle of nowhere. And I remember all the sounds. And and I could feel the fear, you know, rising in me. And then I had this thought, and I don't know where this thought came from, but I had this thought that there's no one here to protect you. There is no one here to help you. You are the only one that is here and can help you at this stage. And I got a, an amazing strength. I'll, I'll never forget that that rising fear and that, oh, my gosh, there's no one here to help me. <laughs> I better do something about this rising fear and yeah. make it go away. So I think for me that was where I really learned um, that emotional resilience and I think it's taken me that three days alone in the bush three nights three days or we're going on to the fourth day really made a big difference in in my life and it was in during the day I kept my hands busy who knows how much pieces of jewelry I made I have no idea but <laughs> yeah it was about staying in action yeah doing things walking exercising uh, stretching just keeping myself in action because I had no food um, and I didn't know your skills, you know. I bet if I'd known your skills, I could have found some good foods and drinks to have. <laughs> yeah, would have been great. Yeah, maybe, but I, where you were sounded like total bliss. But, be, you know, you, you learn to live without by keeping your hands busy, mind quiet. That's that whole Zen concept that's so useful in those situations. And you, you obviously have achieved that with your jewelry making so that's that's an exact manifestation of what i'm teaching people here they're just got to find delete jewelry insert activity of choice and, and do that keep your hands busy keep them moving but not in a not in a bear grills climb up a mountain jump off a cliff way in mm. a calorie common sense way so cal- calorie conserving moisture conserving risk mitigating way that's the trick of survival mm. Can we now focus on, because I can't believe how long we've been talking for and we haven't even talked about some of the plants. Can we just 
focus on a few plants that we learnt about. And the one that, and, and it's not a plant, it's a resin. The one that got me was when you scraped that um, sap from the bloodwood tree and um, what that, you know, I would look at that sap and I'd go, oh, the poor tree. <laughs> you looked at that sap as this amazing, having these amazing qualities. Could you talk about um, that sap and, and, and what it does and what you did with it? Yeah. Yeah, with pleasure. It's one of, the, one of the, my most passionately sought out bush medicines. Um, and I think I, I explained to you about the fact that whenever we go walking or hiking, we're often on the lookout for big, old, grandparent vintage trees in the forest. Because to me, my way of thinking from a spiritual point of view is that those guys are going to have the most powerful medicine. And that's really what the, the, the sap is. So the sap's, sap's usually from eucalyptus species trees, and it's referred to generically as Kino, K-I-N-O. It's a traditional Aboriginal medicine, and it's been used extensively as a topical wound antiseptic, much like you'd use betadine or um, iodine. It effectively looks the same colour, and that's because it's very, very rich in the tannins. So those tannins also make it useful for a whole range of other things. They, they can be, as we said, we, dried it, we crumbled it up in dry form. It's very styptic in nature, which means it, it pulls the tissues or causes the tissues to tighten and, and arrests bleeding. So if you get cuts and stuff on your hands, you can just crush up the kino into that dark, rich red brownie powder and sprinkle it directly onto the wound. Now, it's antiseptic in nature. It is uh, styptic in nature. So it automatically is like putting a dressing and treating that wound straight away. You can also ingest it. So we can use it as a mouthwash by just gargling it for sore throats, mouth ulcers, dental problems. So you can just make a strong tea of it and then spit it back out. And in light, light concentrations, it was also used by a lot of people in the past, both early white settlers in Australia and the traditional Aboriginal custodians of, the, of this country, in a way where they just drink it as, as a tea for intestinal problems such as diarrhea, um, dysentery, and a whole stack of anti-inflammatory sort of use inside our gastrointestinal tract. It was a very, very diverse and useful medicine. One of the, one of the things that um, I had you on mute, sorry, and that's why I came a little bit close. We had a bit of noise in the warehouse, so I had you on mute. So I do apologise there, Rich. But one of the things that... No problem. Yeah, one of the things that you did talk about with Kino was um, the gum issues. And, you know, from a nutrition point of view... You know, the gastrointestinal tract is a really important vehicle for us to have health and abundant health. And if that gastrointestinal tract is not working right, then we're going to have issues. So, you know, one of the things I noted with Kino was you said it was good for gum issues. And there's a lot of people that have got um, gum problems that is at the beginning of their gastrointestinal tract and are causing all sorts of, you know, of issues. So the mouth, a cut and the um, a leaky gut are the three places where we are going to have health issues that um, can impact our whole body, our whole energy and our health. And so when you, you said, you know, like for gum issues, I just thought, 
we go out and we buy all of this stuff at the pharmacy and it's probably sitting on a tree in somebody's backyard and they don't, you know, have to do that. So um, I was especially um, taken with uh, the bloodwood. Well, it was bloodwood, I think, we took it from, but you, like you were saying, you look for the big eucalypts and, and you look for that gum. And the other thing we talked about, and, yeah. um, and you said your favourite resin was frankincense, and that is, a, you know, it's, it's the sap of a tree and, and it's like myrrh is the same. And these were the ones that um, people don't realise, yes, they're out there, but you can also just get the resin of the trees that, that do amazing things for us as well. So another yeah. one, another one that I thought was just, you just blew me away on was cobbler's peg. Can, can we have a little talk about cobbler's peg, which everybody thinks is a weed and a, a nasty thing and let's get rid of it. But um, you show, shined a whole new light on cobbler's pegs. Yeah, look, cobbler's peg is one of my most favourite foods and medicines. And it's one of those things where, where I can get, duplicity of of use i think that's just value for money in a way that is you know beyond sort of penny pinching with i mean cobbler's peg is used as a food in many parts of the world it's got a long history and a long association with humans it they're still not a hundred percent sure where it came from the north american continent or europe in any case it ended up in all that northern part of the of the world and then as a consequence when white settlers moved to the southern hemisphere they brought that with them so it it turns up in asia it's you know australasia it's all across the northern hemisphere so that's fantastic in its own right because it's it's a friend in the forest you go to practically anywhere in the world and there is that little bugger ready to stick into your socks and come home with you now and here's the beauty of choice in survival situations. You can take that attitude or you can say, G'day, old mate. Thank heavens you're here. I need something to eat. And he, he's, he's there to provide you with food. So you can eat that raw. Um, the, the leaf tips are just, they are a bitter and an, maybe a bit of an acquired taste, but they are bitter and they are nutrient dense with so many very, very important uh, nutrient products that you know, we often get supplements for, particularly things like iron, chlorophyll, that's in abundance in the leaves on that little plant. So it's been used as the food is your medicine concept for a long, long time by many different cultures. And then when you look at the medicinal sides of the same plant, you're going like, oh, wow, this thing, people use the flower as a, a compress for dental cavities and caries. Uh, the, when we deep it in hot water we are extracting a proportion of some of its medicinal properties out for certain uses with in that format and then when we did what we did with you guys on sunday which was we put it in an alcohol to extract more and more medicinal properties out suddenly you've got this blood purifier this incredibly toning powerful medicine that just helps your whole system Fight off whatever it is. It's it's a known antibacterial, antimicrobial, antiviral. It's got a whole stack of things that are right there in the terms of from a medicine point of view. In a, they're big names, and you're sort of going, well, is that just anecdotal, or is that actually been measured? And it has been measured. It's been measured in lots of studies, and it's one of those plants that is just so 
abundant and so powerful and it is almost like it was just put there for human beings to to use in those situations to get their health back in survival the, the whole name of the game is keeping your immune system strong strong mind strong body mm. uh, that's that's the, that's it if you if you have tools in the toolbox like cobbler's peg you know, that's that's an abundance thing and that's just going to get you out of trouble as well as feed you and I love the fact that, you know, you told us that those black seeds or those black pegs that stick in our socks and stick everywhere, it, we can actually sprout them into a sprout. <laughs> I thought, brilliant. I'm not throwing yeah. them away anymore. They're going to go and get sprouted. <laughs> I was, I'm very excited because I had them on my land. But, but isn't my... it just great to be able to look at something that you've always hated? Yeah. <laughs> I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. The last um, plant that I'd really love you to talk about, and then I, I want to talk about what we did on the Sunday with regards to um, how you taught us how to you, um, to prepare the plants. So um, is the, the lichen. That just, when you picked that off that post and then taught us how to identify it, but then when you um, told me the power of it, um, and I would like you to talk about that example of when you used it um, when you cut yourself really badly. So would you talk about the lichen? Yeah, look, the lichen we're talking about is Usnea. It's actually Usnea australis. That's its Latin name. Um, it's colloquially known or its common name is old man's beard. But there are, as we said on the, on the course, there's lots of different types of old man's beards. Um, to identify is key. And mm. that's why I went into such detail to show you that you needed to be able to grab one of the small tendrils of that lichen and stretch it gently apart so you could see what looks like dental floss inside. So you had a green outer powdery shell around the entire stem of the, of the little leaflet thing. And then inside you have this polysaccharide-rich core. And that's how we identify Usnea. And Ustnia is, again, one of these incredible plants that has been occurring in the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, and it seems to have been there forever. It's one of those very, very ancient plants. We use the external core, powdered up, which is what I was doing when, when I cut my hand open with a chainsaw or something, which I try not to do too often, but <laughs> that's happened a couple of times. The forest has got... That stuff, usually, in fact, the last time I did I think the stuff was actually on the log I was cutting. And you could grab that straight off, scrunch it up. It is, you then automatically release some of the antibiotic properties in the powder that is on the external aspects of that, that lichen. And it is in a cotton wool, kind of steel wool sort of structure anyway. That just naturally serves as a compress. So it's been used as a battlefield dressing by Native American Indians, we know that one for sure, and probably for many other cultures as well, in exactly that way. It's styptic as well. So it, it, its astringent properties help to stem the bleeding. The compress direct pressure principle is still being sort of relevant in this case, and the thing is amazing. It's antibacterial, antimicrobial, antifungal, antiviral, anti-practically everything you could possibly imagine. Mm. So it's healing straight away. I mean, it's just sitting on the side of a post. You walk past it, don't even give it a second glance. How amazing. 
Yeah. I'm now giving second you know, looks at everything. I, I walk along and I'm, I'm looking for the wild mint. I'm looking for the nettle. I'm looking for everything that you pointed out for me. So I'm, you know, I'm learning. Now then on the Sunday, um, we learnt how to prepare them and we're not going to have time to go through them, but I want people to know what, you know, the extent of what we did over the weekend. We learnt how to make a poultice um, and not using cloth, but using plantain leaves so um, in order to make a bandage of it and then maybe throw a bandage over it later. But you did it with all the plants. We learned infusions, decoctions and tinctures. And um, I came back to Changing Habits and, and was telling quite a few of the, the girls here what I had done and, and they were all going, oh, we want to learn how to do a tincture and a decoction. Now, I've always wanted to learn that and the simplicity of how you taught it. Um, is what I absolutely love. So we'll leave that for people who want to come and do your course. But I do, I have a, a final question for you and I want to know why you do what you do. Why, why are you doing this? You have a family, you have little babies, you have a gorgeous wife, you have 320 gorgeous acres that you could just have for yourself. Why, it, there's, there's a passion there and I could feel it while I was there. Why do you do this? Look, it's a... It's a uh, it's a big personal question, but I'll answer it anyway because it's, uh, I think it, it, it helps people understand what this is all about. I, I seriously bought this land originally with the um, intent of becoming a recluse. So I'd had enough of society. I didn't want anything to do with it. It didn't particularly like people, didn't resonate with people, was frustrated with all of the, the way the world was going, where it was headed. Uh, and as a consequence, I thought, you know, I'm just buying myself a mountain. And, and that's what I did. I literally bought a mountain, as you, as you yeah. would recall. But before I even got to live on that mountain, my, my thinking had already started to shift in a significant way because of all that walkabout stuff I did that we were talking about before. And I quickly understood that I had to do something useful with that mountain. I'm, I'm a warrior. That's my profession. That's my trade. And now I'm not a soldier in uniform. People think, oh, you're not a warrior anymore. That's totally the wrong concept. A warrior is what I was born. I will be a warrior till the day I die. I'm working about 121 about there. I'll <laughs> still be a warrior at that age. And the big thing is what, it, what warriors are about is protecting the people, protecting their people. And I figured out I could do more in that space while not standing on the line with a gun myself now. I went, I can empower other people to be strong in their own right, to be self-empowered. And the, the pleasure I get in the job I do now with Bush Law is I get to people show, I get to show people how incredibly awesome they are. And I know for, sure, for a fact, people turn up on a course like mine going, he's an ex-SA's bloke. Um, it'll probably be a weekend characterised by war stories. And I don't really give any war stories, mm. do I? No, not any. I don't think they've got. I don't give. The, I don't think they've got value, and I don't want to give energy back into that space unless it's instructive, unless we can tease something out of it that's of value to the people listening. So, what bit of a job? It's like your job. You, you get the the great. I know you understand this because I've been following your work for for a while as well, and I understand that the the great joy people get in being able to make other people have a sense of better health. Uh, being more complete, more confident, more empowered, that is like the best feeling. And I get the email feedback that just blows me away. I'm often 
walking out of the office with tears in my eyes going, wow, I didn't expect that to have been the impact, but that is fantastic. And that's where I do it. I want to make, make this country and its people the most resilient people. When something goes wrong, they're just going to do what we've always done as Australians and go, right, I'm not going to blame anyone or bitch and moan about this. I'm just going to get on and help my mate out and do what is necessary. And that's what I think I do here. I love it. Mm. And I loved our last fireside talk. Um, everybody was kind of, you know, coming down off what we had learnt and I think very excited by what we had learnt and some people were coming back for the weekend. But our fireside talk um, started to talk about all the bad in the world, you know, the gun laws and um, that what was happening in America and things like that. And one of the things that you left us with is don't give energy to what is happening out there. Give your energy. I, I can't, can you just give me a little fireside talk before we finish up today? Yeah, look, my, my philosophy is this, and I'm coming from a position of having been a very black, negative, angry person with the whole world. So that doesn't do us as individuals any good. So I've learned just to turn that around. I do lots and lots of reading. I read everything I get my hands on, and a lot of the stuff I've read, it has been in the in the because I don't believe in rosy colored glasses either. It's like bad stuff happens. That's the reality. But I've understood the concept of don't give the bad stuff too much of your attention, too much of your energy, because then when you do that, you're encouraging more of the same. It's a bit, a bit like the law of attraction concept in reverse. But don't give it that energy. Acknowledge it. You don't have to live in la la land, but acknowledge it and go, yep, righto, I accept that. And I'm aware of that, but now I'm going to send light, love, courage in all directions to get everything moving in a better direction for all of us. And that's, that's what we sort of basically mentioned, which I know is incredibly weird coming from an ex-SAS gunfighter. <laughs> but what better qualification to say, hey, if I can see it and if I can do that, mm. it's got to be something anyone can do. And the last thing is how do people find you if they're interested in 2017? Because I know you're doing in probably by the time this goes to air, you will have done your last course for 2017. So how do they find out about you? What courses you're doing, you know, um, and all the information? Yep, look, we have a website. Um, it's just www.bushlawaustralia.com.au. Couldn't get Australia enough times in there and a Facebook page. There are two main portals to find out what we're doing. Um, we have a courses page on the website which tells you what's coming up. I've just got to get busy and actually update it. And Facebook page, we put stuff up all the time about what's going on here at the school and usually what's coming up as well in the events section of the Facebook page. Also, we've got a YouTube channel which is just Bush Law Oz or Bush Law Australia. Either one will get you to that and that gives you some more of the I guess the, the teaching stuff behind the scenes and some of the things that are covered on courses. So if you just want to know more, they're, they're probably good starting points. And you've got a Facebook page as well? Bushwell does. I don't. But yes, Bushwell certainly does. Okay. So um, I just want to spell that because some people might think it's L-A-W, but it's Bush, L-O-R-E australia.com.au and I will put them on the show notes in case somebody doesn't get that 
But I want to thank you, Rich, for spending an hour with me and spending two days with me over the weekend. Um, I know I'll be doing more courses and my husband's very keen to do some courses because uh, not only, you know, you think it's about survival, you think it's about wild foods and wild medicine, but it's the, I think the philosophy that you teach changes people's lives around. And I think I saw that many, I noticed that um, on the course that I did that many people were there and I, I thought there was a couple there um, that were turning a different life. I, I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I just got that feeling um, and, um, I, and it was so wonderful to see because they come in with diseases, like health diseases, health issues, um, and they soon start to learn that it's not about just looking at survival and things like that in, a, in, in um, you know, the bush, but it's survival in the city and what foods are right for them. So I want to thank you, Rich, and I want um, for all of our listeners, please go in and look Rich up and see what he's doing. And if you want to do his courses, let me know when you're going to go. Um, you know, it, you never know, we might be able to hit one together. And give us a fast five-star uh, five rating. And I really do wish the princess and the tart were here because I think they really would have got a lot out of it. And you never know, I might drag them to one of your courses. <laughs> um, so if you want to know any more information. Please on, do. Yes, I will, Rich. <laughs> and if you want to know any more information, on us go to the wellness couch forward slash up for a chat. Uh, and we will see you next week on the ride. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.